0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Voice for Choice podcast. I'm your host as always, Kevin Curran, and joining me for this special edition to discuss the Indo-Pacific and all the issues related uh, to this, of course, important region is Dr. Antoine Bondas. He's a research fellow and a director of both the Korea program and the Taiwan program at the Foundation for la Recherche Strategique. Uh, so apologies for my butchered French, but uh, a very big welcome to you today, Antoine. Hi,
1: thank you for having me.
0: Very much a pleasure, as I said. So the first important thing to mention is, of course, uh, as my poor French uh, indicated, we have uh, our first French guest ever on the podcast. Uh, And I wanted to kind of get the vantage point from Paris because uh, us being in Central Europe and landlocked countries, often we're not looking to the Indo-Pacific or the seas as much as maybe the French are. I was kind of hoping you could give us a brief rundown about why the Indo-Pacific is so important for France and how that translates to overall importance in the EU more broadly. Yeah, sure. Um, so so
1: once again, thank you very much for the opportunity to, to lay out kind of a French perspective on the Indo-Pacific and try to explain a bit better the French Indo-Pacific strategy. Um, first, I would start by mentioning that France is a unique uh, EU member state. Um, since we do have, as French people, Sovereign interest in the Indo-Pacific, and that makes it very different from the German, from the Czech, from the Poles or, or from the Swedish. We have more than 1.6 million French people living on overseas territories in the region, from the Réunion island to uh, French Polynesia. It's more than 90 percent of our economic exclusive zone, uh, and we have more than 7000 soldiers permanently deployed in the region. So for us, it's not only about trade, it's not only about sustainable development, it's not only about innovation, culture, etc. It's first and foremost about sovereignty and the defense of French territories and French citizens in the region. It explains you why the French were the very first among the Europeans to lay out kind of an Indo-Pacific strategy. It was in spring 2018 when President Macron uh, visited Australia. Um, the idea was to lay out a perspective that was mostly about sovereignty and security. It explained you why the Ministry of Armed Forces in 2019 was the very first one to present its own ministerial Indo-Pacific strategy under the name of the security strategy in the Indo-Pacific. Actually, it didn't come out of the blue. It was just an update of the so-called security strategy in the Asia-Pacific was de facto rebranded as the security strategy in the Indo-Pacific. And only later, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs presented kind of a vision and the priorities in the Indo-Pacific. So initially, I would say it was a bit unbalanced because the security and the military perspective uh, was very overwhelming. And it was actually criticized by some of our partners within Europe when we were asking them actually, to lay out their own Indo-Pacific strategy because they considered that, you know, France was trying to drag them on the security and military aspect in the region when they considered that their interests, and especially their capacities, were quite limited. So what France has been doing over the last two and three years has been to actually rebalance a little bit that Indo-Pacific strategy. And the document that was published in July 2021, just before President Macron visited tokyo and french polynesia so it was in july uh, was very important the idea was once again to explain that yes france does have sovereign interest in the region but we have just like our european partners trade economic uh, cultural environmental interest etc that in the region what is at stake is the fight and mitigation against climate change, the fight against illegal shipping, uh, the the help and rescue in terms of natural disasters, etc. So the idea was to rebalance it, not to weaken, I would say, the security and military pillar, but to strengthen the economy and trade, the uh, people-to-people exchanges, the uh, sustainable development pillars. And it was actually a government strategy, not a ministerial strategy, but a government strategy published by Uh, the French government so a very overall uh, strategy. So that's basically the the main idea. The strategy, this one from 2021 was updated in February 2022 to include of course one big evolution uh, that was AUKUS but I'm sure we will discuss it later on. Just to put it very briefly, in our strategy we consider we had three key strategic partners uh, Japan India and Australia. Australia is no longer considered as a strategic partners. We also consider that the ASEAN and more broadly Southeast Asia is one very important region for the French interest. We're getting closer and closer to Indonesia. But the French do have a very comprehensive overview, very comprehensive definition of the Indo-Pacific because it spans actually from the eastern coast of Africa to Uh, the Pacific island state. So it's a very extensive definition in which the Pacific Ocean and the Indian Ocean are two very, very important parts when at the EU level, it may be much more focused on the Southeast Asia.
0: Well, you did uh, kind of steal my thunder there a bit with the AUKUS uh, question. Uh, That is one that I definitely want to get to. But uh, before that, talking about kind of the security issues and the threats there. uh, I'm curious about what the main threats are to France's interests, uh, and if there's any nations. I feel like we might be uh, leaving an elephant in the room, uh, perhaps, uh, with the China challenge, and I wonder if you could touch upon that. Sure, I,
1: I made it on purpose because the idea is that the Indo-Pacific strategy is not only about China, and it's for sure not against China, even though China is is by definition part of it. Uh, so the risks and threats identified in the region are, are plentiful. You have, of course, uh, the, the issue of non-proliferation. Let's not forget that uh, you have the uh, nuclear and ballistic proliferation crisis in North Korea, uh, the one in Iran. You have non-traditional security risk from uh, terrorism and piracy in Southeast Asia to the impact of climate change, and you have, of course, and you mention it. The challenges that some big countries pose, and the first one being, of course, uh, China. So, from the French perspective, there are a lot of issues of concern. First, to make sure that international law, the global, I mean, the the world-based order, as we sometimes call it, is being fully respected. That freedom of navigation is something that is implemented all over the region including in the South China Sea. A- and the French, to express and demonstrate their willingness to promote this kind of rule-based order and international law, has been willing to dispatch some capacities, some military assets. Uh, it was the case in 2021, for example, when the uh, French nuclear submarine Emerald transited through the South China Sea. It was the case when our French intelligence navy ship, Le Dupuy de Lome*. Transited in the Indo Pacific as well as through the Taiwan Strait. The idea, once again, was not to provoke China, but just to remind everyone that freedom of navigation in international waters is something that matters to the French and that it is in our interest to uh, promote and make sure it's being fully respected. So, once again, I think there are a lot of security challenges in the region and military challenges. Uh, The French Navy considered that the rearmament, we call it the naval rearmament, le réarmement naval in the Indo-Pacific, is something of concern. It's not only uh, in China that uh, has more than double its military assets in the space of of 20 years, but that's the case also of of South Korea that is beefing up its navy of Indonesia, of Malaysia, etc. So there are many things going on in the region. The balance of power is shifting. It's a very dynamic region with a lot of traditional and non traditional security risk. And the French want to make sure that we can defend our territories, protect our citizens, and for sure promote our, our interests and values in the region. And, and that's why the Indo-Pacific is still, uh, despite the war in Ukraine, despite AUKUS, one of the French priority.
0: Well. You know, I do wonder about the war in Ukraine from the Central European perspective where we're sitting, um, that being kind of the main focus not only of the EU more broadly, especially with the German pivot in policy, but um, the NATO focus, of course, being on this region. Uh, Do you feel that that distracts at all from maybe France's more specific interests in the Indo-Pacific?
1: Of course, and, and I think it's quite legitimate for everyone to refocus on, on Europe and what's going on in Ukraine, a- and uh, we need to be very pragmatic and realistic in what we can achieve in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, Let me, to, to explain it, maybe uh, remind everyone what happened over the last few months, few years uh, within the European Union. France was the very first uh, EU member state to lay down a strategy in 2018, then in 20. 20 Germany and the Netherlands presented guidelines for the Indo-Pacific. These three countries decided to push at the Council level to make sure that the other EU member states would be supportive of a European strategy in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, and it was actually supported in late 2020 by Sweden, by Poland, by Italy, and by Portugal, who was back then having the presidency of the Council of the EU. It led to uh, a declaration by Josep Borrell in March 2021 that the EU was working on a so-called strategy for cooperation in the Indo-Pacific and a strategy that was presented in September 2021, a few days actually just after the AUKUS deal uh, was announced. And in February 2022, a few weeks ago, February 22nd, the French organized the very first ministerial meeting of the Minister of Foreign Affairs from both Europe and the Indo-Pacific and it was in Paris. So we've had the momentum, we've had the strategy, we had the momentum with that Ministerial Forum and the key objective now should be very realistic. It will not be to amplify, I would say, the dynamic, unfortunately, and everyone is focusing on Ukraine with, with right reason and legitimate reason, but at least to make sure we can maintain the momentum.
0: Okay, so we've established that there is momentum, but that's kind of a key question about the maintenance of that momentum amid major distractions that we've mentioned. How can this momentum be maintained independently for the EU when certainly transatlanticism seems to be re-establishing itself in light of the invasion of Ukraine?
1: Sure, I I think there are some drivers that will be quite important in helping in maintaining that momentum. The first one is, of course, the interest of the key countries in the Pacific to have a committed uh, European Union and committed um, EU member states. Have like the case of Japan, that's the case of Australia, that's the case of uh, India, etc. So these countries are going to make sure that we, we keep the interest on the Indo-Pacific. The second is we are fortunate, I would say, to have done all of the high-level political parts in late 2021 and early 2022. So the presentation of the Indo-Pacific strategy in September 2021, the ministerial forum in in February 2022. So now it's easier, I would say, for the working level to keep working on it. Uh, We don't necessarily need another very high-level meeting uh, or or ministerial conference on the Indo-Pacific. We can get things done by making sure that the working level is working. The third aspect is we need to make sure that EU member states understand that on trade, on the fight against climate change, on the rule-based order in general, etc., the Indo-Pacific remain very important. So for sure, Europeans are not going to amplify the movement because they are focusing politically. Uh, in terms of security, uh, on what's going on in Ukraine. But through pragmatic and practical issues, we can make sure that these member states will keep focusing on the Indo-Pacific. And this is what the Czech presidency will try to do uh, in the next semester. Uh, They will focus on environments, on cybersecurity, on space, uh, and, and I would think I would say that one of my key advice is to make sure that each of the member states can focus on kind of niche, uh, on the added value they may have, that we can pull up resources together, uh, and that will be the way we can maintain the momentum. But uh, uh, w- once again, to amplify it will be, will be very
0: complicated in this
1: uh, uh, war in Ukraine time, etc.,
0: Yeah. And just quickly on the independence uh, aspect, because, you know, strategic autonomy has been something that's been talked about ad infinitum. I'm just curious what your thoughts are on coordinating with the U.S. or especially from the French perspective in light of the AUKUS failure. So, you know that the whole question of strategic autonomy, I'm not
1: sure it will remain a core concept, even from the French side in the coming years. And we're trying much more than before to focus on European sovereignty than maybe straight economy. Uh, In terms of Indo-Pacific, we need to be clear, and I think it's being understood in the capital cities, that uh, the EU has has limited capacities in the Indo-Pacific. We are not a military or I would say hard security actor in the region. Uh, We have have capacities in terms of maritime security, in terms of cyber security, in terms of uh, uh, even non-proliferation, etc. But We are not an actor that is a prime actor, I would say, um, in the region. So the Europeans have an added value in terms of trade, in terms of fighting against climate change, in terms of providing overseas development aid, etc. And this is what we we should focus on. On these aspects, it's, I would say, easier than on military aspects, on security aspects, to work closely with the U.S. Because even if the U.S. is much more confrontational with China, we don't have to be on these very specific items. Um, In terms of trade, what we should do is to make sure that we can provide a positive agenda to the Indo-Pacific countries, that we can provide options for these countries to choose, and that the objective should not always be to come to China, to do something because of China, etc. We, we really need it. That's one of my key advice when I discuss with Europeans and, and the Commission or else. It's we need to bring a positive agenda and provide options to the country in the region. Does it mean to do something against or without coordination with the US? No, that, that's not the objective. But sometimes we can offer initiatives, we can offer capacity buildings uh, in some Uh, domains in some areas in which China and the US cannot. So we need to focus on that added value through a positive agenda, providing options
0: to the country in the region. Certainly uh, good advice uh, and hopefully well taken by many stakeholders. But I do want to kind of weave in those aspects that you talk about the EU competency on economics, uh, as well as the focus on some niche aspects. Uh, Certainly Taiwan's been a key partner for some countries in our region, Uh, both the Czech Republic, Slovakia, and most notably Lithuania have opened ties, but that has been kind of seen as directly counter to China's interests. I wonder what your thoughts are on the EU's uh, relationship with Taiwan and overall Indo-Pacific strategies, Mm -hmm. and if these types of bilateral agreements undermine an overall EU strategy in the region. Um, so, so first, there
1: is an unprecedented media coverage in Europe on Taiwan since 2020, plus a growing awareness on the importance of Taiwan in Europe. Um, you have impre- unprecedented political uh, milestone, like the very first uh, resolution on Taiwan at the European Parliament, the very first visits of, I would say, technical groups, technical Um, committee from the EU Parliament to Taiwan. Uh, You have major speeches from the Vice presidents, be it Verstager or Borel, mentioning Taiwan. So a lot is going on. Uh, And I think what is very important is to make sure that cooperation with Taiwan, uh, while remaining in the so-called One China policy, uh, is focusing on technical cooperation, uh, especially on some areas in which uh, Taiwan has a very important added value. Could be economic resilience, could be the fight against uh, foreign interference, uh, the fight against disinformation, um, et cetera. And, and in that context, I've been advising for years for the EU to join the so-called global cooperation and, uh, techni- and, and training framework. That's a framework that was uh, created a few years ago by the U.S., And Taiwan, it was joined by Japan in 2019, joined by Australia in 2021. And the objective, once again, is to improve technical cooperation with Taiwan. So I think that that should be one of the top priorities in the coming months. The second one is to make sure that the Europeans are aware, and they are, of the importance of maintaining stability in the Taiwan Strait. Uh, And if what's going on with Ukraine, I think we need to understand that to maintain the status quo is even more important now than before. And the added value of the Europeans will not be intervening in case of a contingency in the Taiwan Strait. And and we won't have the capacity to do so. Uh, We are not doing it with Ukraine, so there's no reason we will do it with Taiwan, etc. But we have a role to play to prevent a conflict, to make sure that there is no unilateral change by force of the status quo, not in establishing, I don't know, diplomatic relations with the Republic of China-Taiwan. That's not a debate, that's not a question, etc but in making sure that we have practical cooperation and the uh, an awareness on the role we can play to uh, avoid tensions and limit tensions in the region. And
0: in, in the spirit of the advice that you gave, uh, what would be your main pieces of advice to avoid these types of tensions that obviously would spoof many globally, not just in the EU?
1: To be clear, it's going to be very complicated to avoid the tensions. So we can help to diffuse maybe some tensions uh, by making sure that what we do is maybe not seen as too provocative, and by insisting with China that um, our objective is to have technical and economic cooperation with Taiwan, not, once again, to change uh, the status quo. But tensions are going to increase in the coming years, and especially in 2023, the year before the January 2024 presidential election in Taiwan. So we need to be prepared to these uh, tensions, and we need to make sure that we anticipate maybe a bit more what could be the Chinese sanctions, for example, or Chinese economic coercion, uh, Chinese pressure on Taiwan. And I do think that we are not prepared. The same way we are not prepared, we were not prepared in the fall 2021 when China started to sanction Lithuanian companies, but also uh, European companies exporting to China, but uh, with Lithuanian components, etc. So I think we are not prepared. We need to anticipate better what could be the form of pressure from China, and to make sure, once again, that uh, the message we sent is a message defending our interests, maintaining the status quo, uh, and avoiding, at all costs, I would say, conflict in the, in the, in the, in the
0: strait. Well, God willing, that uh, conflict can be avoided. And uh, definitely a big thanks for your helpful messages to our listeners.
1: You're welcome. Thank you.
0: For more on this pivotal region's engagement with China, please do visit the CHOICE website at chinaobservers.eu. Also, consider subscribing to our newsletter, where all of the prescient posts on the CHOICE platform are distilled down and sent directly to your inbox every month. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, on Twitter at China Observers, and on Facebook at China Observers in Central and Eastern Europe. And as always, remember to make the right choice, Join us for our next Voice for Choice podcast.